it seems to me that this should be a fairly brief podcast because our message is simple. Three words, constitutionalize the court. This is This Week in Common Sense. I can't imagine that every American, when they find out that the number of Supreme Court justices is not in the Constitution, and that the Congress at any point could double it, triple it, quadruple it. And if one party controls Washington, by the slimmest majorities today, 50-50 in the Senate, the vice president decides ties. The House, I believe they have, what is it, an eight uh, seat majority, something like that. Uh, There's a number of people who are, uh, a number of seats, I think six seats that are not filled at the moment. Uh, But it's it's a slim, slim majority. And yet the Democrats could change the entire Supreme Court and confirm in in one day, if they were hardworking, wanted to stay late, uh, they could change the law. The president could sign it. The president could nominate 50 new justices. And Democrats would have 53 justices and Republicans would have appointed six. So um, and then, of course, not only is that a problem, but then what's going to happen when Republicans have a majority, as they did when when Trump was first in, they had the opportunity that they could have done the same thing. What would that do? Well, it would immediately say that whoever controls political power can just remake the court and by doing so remake the constitution in the way that has led so many countries throughout the world to have you know a a nice constitution on paper and a government that if you read a textbook about it doesn't sound so terrible and have zero freedom zero freedom because their court system is completely crooked and, and this is a serious problem. You know, it's a serious problem in the U.S. I think almost every state, well, every state court that I've ever had any experience with, I am, let's just say, extremely skeptical and kind of feel like they're crooked. And by crooked, I mean they're political and they make their decisions by what they want to happen politically. They're not independent. They're not fair. And it's a huge problem. And thank goodness for the federal courts. And I say this, having lost in federal court personally as parts of different lawsuits and different chances, <laughs> chances, uh, different opportunities uh, to be in federal court. Because sometimes, you know, oftentimes these days when I'm in federal court, it's because Citizens in Charge or Citizens in Charge Foundation or Liberty Initiative Fund are suing over petition laws in the various states or helping others sue over those laws. So, um, you know, and, and the federal courts have been wonderful about that. But my argument is not that the federal courts are wonderful in every way, shape and form. It is that they are the only branch of the federal government that even resembles slightly what the founders, the framers of the constitution wanted. They wanted independence. And so, you know, it is not good, the games that Republicans have played. And let's recount those. And I didn't really, in Monday's script, constitutionalize the court. 
I make the argument, put the number of justices in the Constitution so there's no more monkeying around with it by Congress. They have to come to us. They have to make a, a big change that everyone notices because it's constitutional if they're going to yank around the court. Because otherwise, you get to a point where each party comes in and yanks it back and forth, and, and we don't have any independence in the court. I'm Mr. Term Limits. I love term limits. I, in my political career, the most successful issue has been term limits and the most time of any issue uh, in terms of really actively uh, pushing it, which I still do, is term limits, because I think it's a simple, straightforward, very beneficial reform. It's supported all across the political spectrum. Um, but there's a difference between term limits for, and we're, we're getting into Thursday's script, because on Thursday, I, I did a commentary called Term Limits or Death and made the argument that I think term limits work even for the court and that it's a better system for us to give judges, you know, maybe it's an 18 year term because that's a multiple of nine and every two years you'd cycle the justice off and you'd bring a new one on. And so Thursday at thisiscommonsense.org, term limits or death basically makes the argument that, you know, it's, it's been unseemly a lot of the Democratic groups like Demand Justice have been saying Breyer should step down right now. How dare he stay on the court? Because, you know, somehow if he stays too long, Biden might not be there. Republicans might take over the Senate. They couldn't change things. And, and so they want him out right now. Well, I don't really take a position on that, but he's 82 years old. He's been on the court for 27 years. And Clarence Thomas has been on even longer. He's a little younger, but he's been on longer. And I, you know, I think the federal courts have been wonderfully independent. Mixed bag, we're all human, no system is gonna be perfect, but the independence that the framers of the constitution wanted and that I think is absolutely essential to have real justice, that has worked with lifetime tenure. And after years of thinking at the state level of different ways that you could get the state courts to work, I'm now of a mind that the thing to do with state courts is to mirror the federal courts in every way, shape, and form. If you can't figure out another way to make it work, in other words, give lifetime tenure to state judges at the state level, uh, or maybe you give them a long 20-year term or something, but you, and you might want a way to remove them if they don't behave. There is that way at, at the federal level. It doesn't happen as much as it should probably, but there is that way but you want the independence that the federal justices have. And that's not there at the state level. And our state courts are a mess. They're, they're largely crooked, political, partisan bodies, and it's a shame and it's, it's dangerous. Um, so I would copy the federal system, but here is you know, somebody who loves term limits, but I love them for legislators and for elected, executives and so on, because you want to make sure that someone can't amass 51% of the vote and hold power forever. And you don't want people using the power they have, even from elective office, to parlay it into more power term after term after term. With the federal courts, it's different. For one, um, 
you know, you, you could have term after term, but that hasn't worked at the state level, whether they're elected or appointed and then retained. It hasn't been a very effective system. It has at the federal level. Um, and I think that the problem is the federal courts have uh, been politicized at the Supreme Court level. And as I point out, um, and I can't remember now whether it was Monday's uh, constitutionalize the court or Thursday's term limits or death, but the fault of politicizing the Supreme Court has not been the justices. They have been decent human beings and got along with each other. They have shown, I think, uh, tremendous independence. Uh, the, the, the justices that Trump appointed have not voted with Trump every time. The justices that Obama appointed have, well, maybe almost every time, but, but for, no, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. I haven't studied every ruling, but I think it's clear that the, and especially with Republicans, they've, because they've appointed so many justices uh, like Ford appointing Stevens, who turned out to be one of the big liberal justices on the court. I mean, you, usually that takes a Democratic president to, to appoint. It was on Thursday you made that uh, comment that you didn't remember <laughs> which day you made it on, that it was Congress and not the court that was corrupt, that was playing politics, that was using gamesmanship. Right, right. And, and the president, of course, because you do see the tendency to, to pick younger justices who could stay for a longer time. And of course you saw what the Republicans did, which we didn't quite, uh, I, I mentioned that I was gonna detail a little bit and let me do that. When Obama picked Merrick Garland, there was quite a good bit of that election year left. And you could make the argument, which Republicans did, that in an election year, we should really wait and let the voters decide. Now, I don't know why we should do that, because the voters already decided. We put these people in. They have this length of time to do stuff. As long as it's within that length of time, why would you wait? Because there's an election coming up. It was an excuse. And of course, you know, uh, anyone who's read every one of our, what is it, four or 5,000 uh, commentaries now, uh, years ago, uh, when that came up, I advocated that Congress bring up Merrick Garland and vote him down and say to Obama, unless you're going to get someone who improves the court, we're not going to, we're not going to vote yes. And that would, if I were a U.S. Senator, I would vote for a judge if I thought this judge was going to improve the court. If I didn't think the judge was going to improve the court, I would vote against him. Even if I thought he was a, just, he or she was a wonderful person, um, it's their judicial philosophy and the, that I'm interested in. And so I don't begrudge Republicans that argument, but I, I don't find it persuasive. I do think that it's legitimate for whatever party controls the Senate to you know, the, the Constitution says advise and consent. Well, I think I would say, look, I'm not going to consent unless I really like your pick. So let's get together and see if we can agree. And if not, then, you know, the court waits. Uh, but that's not quite what the Republicans did. I mean, that is what they did to block Garland. And of course, you know, the shock that Donald Trump is president and, uh, and you think about it, I mean, the difference between Donald Trump picking three justices and Hillary Clinton picking three justices is a pretty big difference. It's the difference between the 6-3 Republican 
nominated and confirmed uh, justices against the three Democrat nominated and confirmed justices. Uh, and it would have flipped and been six to three uh, for Democratic nominated. And I think Hillary Clinton would have picked uh, horrible justices in my view. And, and I have to say that I think uh, Donald Trump, you know, there were all kinds of places. Uh, I, I was very complimentary of him, you know, for being the first president to kind of recognize that we got a real problem with uh, the Chinazis uh, and, and to stand up to China in a way. And I, I think that was critical. Uh, there was also a lot that I think, you know, he was a big government guy. He spent a lot of money. He seemed to think that government doing all kinds of things that it has no business doing was okay. Um, but his court picks, I think, were the other thing that was, were really, really pretty good. Uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, pretty conservative justices. I'm more of a libertarian. There's going to be all kinds of issues, criminal justice stuff to some degree, national security state stuff that I'm probably not going to like their decisions so much. But for the most part, you know, they're better than they're better than the people that were on the court, for the most part. And uh, and Gorsuch, as I've said many times, uh, uh, and we've we've written about him several times at, at thisiscommonsense.org. He uh, he, I think, is the best justice in my lifetime, um, and just a, a wonderful justice who follows the law. So he may not like the opinion he has to write. But he's going to write it. And, and I think that's all, I mean, that's the highest order of a judge. So um, anyway, the, the Republicans then, of course, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who didn't step down as Obama asked her to, to and as other liberals demanded, she stepped down and had the audacity to just stay on the court until she passed away. Uh, now, Donald Trump gets to pick his third justice. And of course, it's right before the election. There's hardly any time. And of course, my first thought I have to say, because I wanted him to pick and not, you know, Joe Biden was darn well better put, make the nomination and there's no reason the Senate can't do it. Um, we one time, I'll just, just a little tangent, but sometimes they'll say, well, that can't happen that fast. Legislatures, and government moves as fast as it wants to move. We had a lawsuit uh, that was about to be heard in, in federal court in Michigan challenging their residency requirement. And one morning, a bill in their legislature was kind of gotten stuffed and a provision was put in to end their state's residency requirement, and which is what we were asking in our federal lawsuit. And Later that night, that was law in Michigan. It passed. It was, in other words, it was introduced into another kind of gotten stuffed into another bill and sent through the entire legislature, House and Senate in a day. So it's anytime legislature, well, that can't happen. Oh, it can. There, it can't happen for you, maybe, but it can happen for them if they want it. Anyway, um, I, don't, I forget what that was even attached to, but I just, I, I've always been amazed by that because it kind of precluded our lawsuit and it made it to where, you know, we really didn't get into the lawsuit, which was great. We, we like to win, 
but it was funny how it was done. It was done in such a way that we put a lot of work in and then all of a sudden they change it at the last minute. And it just goes to show sometimes they are watching and they can act very quickly. Did they expect to lose your the lawsuit and decide that? Oh, and, yes. and, and oh, so yes. what was the point of caving just, just to show what? Well, I think so that we didn't run up a, a, a bill because in the end, after we win the lawsuit, we'll file, you know, we'll say, look, this was a constitutional violation and, and attorney's fees should be paid by the state. And I know, I think we got 400,000 from uh, uh, Nebraska when, when, you know, we challenged and overturned their residency law. Almost all these residency laws are obviously unconstitutional, I think. And I'm not an attorney, I'm not a federal judge, but over and over again, uh, every appeals court, federal appeals court that's dealt with it, it's three to nothing. Um, striking it down. We just won a case in Maine, but there was a case in Montana that we lost. They ruled that, oh no, it's a, you know, it's no big problem, no big burden. And I think it'll get to the Ninth Circuit and they'll slap, slap down that decision and reverse it. But so this is a residency requirement for petitioners, not for voters. Right, right. Because you're, you're actually a little bit different on that subject. <laughs> well, I think there should be a residency requirement for voters, but not for petitioners. Um, but it's interesting that we see in different states, I've been working some in Maine, and this here's another tangent, but uh, they have uh, a rule that when you register to vote in Maine, you're supposed to, if you come from a different state, you're supposed to change your driver's license or whatever ID and other stuff within you know 30 day period. And they have 160,000 people who are voters in Maine, but don't have any ID. And in some cases, those are gonna be people in nursing homes who are registered voters, but they don't have any ID. They're not driving, they're 93 years old, um, their driver's license is expired, they don't need another ID, you know, or you know, there's all kinds of different situations that you could be in. But the bulk of them from what uh, a number of people, myself included, uh, surmise are college students who live with their parents in a different state and don't change their driver's license from that state after they register to vote. But if they're in a state, and you can understand by, by someone, you know, if you're voting in California or Wyoming, you know, if you're a Democrat in Wyoming or you're a Republican in California, wouldn't you much rather vote in a state like Maine where you might actually make a difference someday uh, as opposed to a state where you know your vote is just, you know, you lose 80-20 every time you go to the polls. And, and so there's that. There's also a lot of people who have a second home in Maine. Uh, it's a nice place in the summer to go and so on. And, uh, and so you have a lot of people who, well, you have a lot of people who vote twice who have two homes. Years ago, when I was uh, uh, being harassed uh, by the attorney general in Oklahoma till, till he quit, um, but uh, there was a case of the, and it was over a residency requirement thing in a, in a petition drive and we prevailed in the end, but it was a, a little bit scary. But during that period, the mayor of Tulsa was found to have voted in Tulsa <laughs> where, of course, she was the mayor, and in Florida, where she and her husband had a home. Now, 
her husband is a resident of Florida because Florida by initiative has passed wonderful protections for property owners and property taxes. So property taxes are low in Florida. They also don't have an income tax, which is why a lot of people move to Florida and start businesses. And anyway, they seem to have something going as far as those things go. Um, but obviously they don't want to, you know, he wants to stay his residency in Florida. She's the mayor of Tulsa. You kind of have to have a residence in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But that opportunity to vote twice if you want to is there. And it happened in this case. Now, she said that it was, a, it was not so. She did not vote twice. And that someone at her polling place in Florida must have just marked her name. And the local officials were so curious that they said, well, we're not going to look into it at all. <laughs> at all. So it's, and that's what happens with a lot of these uh, situations. The, the Secretary of State in Maine has been urged several times to do a check to see how many people don't have driver's license and so on. And he, he found out in a hearing recently, but th this, is, uh, this is a situation in which you're allowing people to come in and vote in your state who don't really live in your state. And, you know, it's not ax murder, um, but it's not right. And it seems to me that there should be an interest in weeding that out. And I don't think these people need to be in prison for, you know, decades, guillotined, anything like that. But they need to be kind of, they need to be sent a letter that says, uh, we need you to appear and uh, you might be fined some money for voting illegally. And, and again, it, with all the with all the back and forth partisanship wise, it just seems to me that there's some basic things. It's like with the with the the Capitol riot on January 6th, and we have a uh, uh, I'm, I'm I, it's it's Pam, isn't it? I think it's Pat who makes sense on the website, uh, but in the comments we have a commenter Pam, who for and I think she ceased and desisted from this behavior now. I, I think, I haven't seen a, a post lately, but for weeks and weeks after January 6th, she had a little post saying, why won't you talk about what happened on January 6th and condemn it? And of course, the commentary on January 7th <laughs> was about that and did talk about it and did condemn it. And one of the things I pointed out is, these people need consequences. And I'm not talking about draconian, you know, get crazy. I just consequences. Some of them need to go to jail. Some of them need to be fined. Some of them maybe didn't do much of anything at all. And, and let's not pursue that. You know, maybe they, they thought everyone was walking in. I don't know. But in other words, there's individual circumstances, but the attitude ought to be, we're going to punish wrongdoing in a sensible, reasonable way that will tell people, hey, I better not do wrong because then I know there's gonna be consequences. And we, we pointed out that it was a problem that throughout the summer and all of the different 
you know, looting and riots and the, we call them BLM protests, but I don't think all of them were BLM protests. I think some of them were just people who did or maybe had absolutely nothing to do with BLM who decided I want to go burn or loot or do something obnoxious and destructive. And, and we need to be against that. And we also need to and I run into this with initiative petitions and the way they want to, they've always tried to go after fraud. Some of the same people who don't think there's ever any fraud in voting, if they find anyone did anything funny on a petition, it's fraud, there's fraud everywhere. And the truth is, look, we've all, we see the world around us. People are not perfect. People will cut corners. People who are allowed to cut corners all the time sometimes decide maybe I can cut more of the corner. People sometimes do bad things. And the more they think they can get away with it, the more it happens. And so, you know, we want to come down on any of these type things. And, and a, a response to uh, petition signatures where there's fraud where the solution is to rip apart the process, well, that's not smart. But I would never say, oh, there's never any fraud. And we shouldn't do anything to go after fraud. In fact, one of the interesting things we see in the initiative petition business is that when you point out fraud, when you want the state to come down on people who are, because they're defrauding usually the petition companies and the sponsors who are paying for these things, the state, if you turn it in, is going to find the fraud because they check the signatures. And if you're if you're at all capable of doing a solid check yourself, you're going to find the fraud. And that means the fraud's against you because you probably paid them something to go collect decent signatures and they gave you garbage. You want that prosecuted and almost never is it prosecuted because it's not going to get them big headlines. We have a justice system where the prosecutors, oh, I'm going to prosecute this more because that's going to give me big headlines. And uh, it's, you know, that that's its own problem. But when you look at um, fraud in the voting process, it doesn't mean you're, the response, you know, it, it, it's, I don't think that the last election was all decided by fraud. Um, I don't know. I'd like more investigation. I see things. I see things that were done unconstitutionally. And you could call that fraud, although that's probably not the term I would use for it. But there were all kinds of things that could have been done differently. Let's look at it all. Let's look at it all. That election's over. It's not going to be changed at this point. But let's openly look at it all. And then after we look at it, let's look at the changes that are being suggested about voting. And if you find that there's a little bit of fraud, but not enough to have decided an election, it's still worth going after that fraud and saying, wait a second, maybe we ought to have voter ID. Maybe we ought not to allow ballots to just be sent to everybody. Maybe we ought not to register everybody, whether they want to be registered or not. And then as HR1 or Senate S1, the Senate version, um, they would mandate that every state automatically register everyone to vote. 
and then automatically send everybody ballots. So that you have all these people who have not opted in, who have not asked for any of this, and all these ballots floating around. And the, the other thing that it does is it will register a number of people who aren't citizens, who did not ask to be registered, but are being registered to vote. There's a specific provision in that federal legislation passed by the House that makes it to where you cannot be prosecuted for that, both the non-citizen non and the government person who puts the non-citizens on the rolls. Stop this automatic, throw everybody on some list. That's not how it works in a free society. You, the government doesn't just take people and throw them on a list and say, you will be a voter. And again, I'm not for it being tough. If they, if, if, if folks in my state or any state want to have every government office offer you right then and there immediately a way to register to vote and be put on the rolls or to correct your registration or do anything to do with voting, I'm for it. I'm for it. I think it probably doesn't make sense on like fire engine, you know, if, well, if you call the fire department, they shouldn't, as you're going, my house is on fire, they shouldn't be going. Well, now first, I want to know if you'd like to register to vote, but, you know, in a, in a reasonable way, let's make it easy. Let's make it easy to vote. But I've pointed out things like, let's not make it easy to vote for six weeks. Because the problem is making it easy to vote in that way makes the election incredibly expensive and gives a huge advantage to entrenched incumbent politicians and their entrenched interests. And it allows big money to have more say so. And it, it seems like on all of these issues, it's like the, the, the Georgia legislation or the Iowa legislation, you look at some of these bills and they've been called racist and, and voter suppression. And then if you've, if you've done any due diligence to look at what they actually do and compare them to other states, you know, if, if they're racist, horrible voter suppression, you've got all these democratic states that have no early voting or a week of early voting or, and, and look, I've, I've, a week of early voting I think is fine. I think there should be some. And, and again, if the people of a certain state say, Paul, hey, we want it this way, I'm fine with that too. Here's the, here's the problem. The people are not involved in this discussion. And, and so it's Republicans saying this, it's, it's the federal Congress, which is Democrat controlled, wanting to dictate to every single state in the country that they must just automatically put everybody on the rolls and automatically send everybody ballots. And then you've got Republicans saying, no, we want to limit here and here. But these, the Republican bills that I've looked at, I expected them to be, you know, to have some rough edges. I knew that they would limit early voting and, and in most cases, and I want that to happen. Now, their motivations may be different than mine, but I think that's a really important thing to happen to reduce the cost. Um, but I figured they would be doing lots of other things. And it turns out that in almost all of these cases, what, what they're doing different 
is to tighten up and require some sort of proof that the ballot arriving in the mail is actually from the voter it purports to be from. And I don't have a problem with that. And again, I'm not alleging that millions of people sent in fraudulent ballots last time. But if you tell me there's an easy way to make it to where people can't really send in fraudulent ballots, I say, let's do it. And if you tell me, but wait a second, that does, it's a little more complicated than it otherwise would be to then vote absentee. Well, you want to vote absentee, you have a need to vote absentee, you're going to have to be willing to go through a couple of steps. And again, if anyone can show me this is a silly, stupid step that has no validity and no benefit, well, then let's get rid of that step. This, and again, you're going to have both sides who just pretend the other side is evil. They're usually right about that. Um, and then they're also going to say that, you know, this devastates everything. The voter ID stuff is, is ridiculous. And most people, frankly, don't believe it. But the media and other folks are going to act as if a voter ID requirement is going to totally change the electorate and suppress the vote a lot of places. And especially when you're talking about a voter ID requirement for a mailed-in ballot, where you're asking for a special, not just early voting, but you can vote absentee by mail, you know, it seems to me that you should give something up. Now, we've, we've gone on a big tangent, but I'm going to bring it back to what we were talking about with the court in this way. They don't care what any of us think about any of these election reforms. They don't plan to get in the weeds, both because they don't think we're smart enough to understand anything in the weeds, and because they're afraid that we might hear something that causes us not to listen to them call it a racist bill or Jim Crow or whatever. So they don't want us involved in that. And the truth is any decent public spirited media people ought to be concerned that we have a Supreme Court where basic rules, the number of justices are, is not in the constitution, but could just be whipsawed changed every time there's a new government. That's crazy. It's not stable and it's dangerous from a partisan standpoint. And we also have allowed, you know, uh, the vagaries of death to decide our timetables for our most important court. And that seems ridiculous to me. And again, none of these are talked about in that way. When I watch stories and read stories in the paper, it seems like it's always, well, the Republicans are doing this and the Democrats are doing this. And it, the court is all talked about in this, you know, ping pong match between these two rotten forces and not talked about as, hey, wait a second, this is our country, what kind of court do we want? And I think that if, if, if there was more discussion in that way, that the you know, court packing is not gonna come up and be pushed by regular folks who don't have a partisan uh, you know, uh, ax to grind. And what the Republicans pulled, and granted, 
They didn't steal. We took we took exception to uh, one of the demand justice people who said they stole to, you know, they stole multiple Supreme Court justices. They followed the rules. But they did it in a really obnoxious, dishonest way, because the rationale they used to block one justice, they threw out the window when it suited them. And of course, then we're not surprised, but we are disgusted nonetheless. And it seems to me that some of those rules might be written in to the Constitution so that we have a process. And, and it's not so easy because so you don't want to write every little move in the Constitution. You might even put it in law. At least that would require that the Senate couldn't just change it of their own accord. They'd have to get House approval and the president and there's different ways to do it, but all of us have an interest in Republicans not being able to continue to play that game. And for the Democrats not to be able to play the same game they just saw the Republicans to play. And for the Democrats not to be able to pack the court because they don't like the game the Republicans played. And for the Republicans not to be able to come back in and then pack the court because they don't like the way the Democrats packed the court. That's my point about all of this election stuff, all of this stuff about the court, which is a co-equal branch and should not be dictated to and controlled by the Congress with, you know, within certain limits, you could see it, but not in a way where they could just completely restructure it at, at the drop of a hat. Those are things that we, that if you're focused on government as how do we citizens control the government, none of these ideas are going to come up, court packing and all of that. And, and, uh, and I think that's a, a big problem because our media is feeding us what the Republicans and Democrats are doing. And in fact, most of the time, they're not just feeding it to us, you know, openly, objectively, they're feeding it to us with their own spin on it, as if it's gospel. And so we, we have to find ways to, to, get beyond that. And, uh, and that's, that's why we talk about these things. Well, that's two of five. Uh, did you want to skim over the other three? <laughs> well, we've been going a, a good while and, uh, but I do think we can deal with the other three uh, uh, quickly. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I wanted to jump to query theory and microaggression uh, first. This was Wednesday's. And uh, first, I have to salute you, Tim, that uh, that is your title, the query theory and and uh, with queer theory and some of the different things I just thought it was. And this is all about a uh, University of Virginia, my home state, a medical student who goes to uh, a lecture about uh, microaggressions and so on and asks some questions. and. Apparently they didn't like the questions. You know, there's there's no there's no bad question, but uh, uh, things are changing. So they go after him, and they want him to make an apology. They want him to go through some sort of like sensitivity type training, um, as if he's committed some sort of awful crime because he asked some questions. It's not as if he came and, and, and gave some speech, he asked questions. Um, and 
we, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that when you talk about microaggressions, the problem is they're not aggressions in any real sense. They, they really fit. And I, I had a friend who took me to task on this. Uh, remember, we, we and I told him, I said, I thought about doing a, a, a note at the end to just make the point that, look, there are caddish people out there, rude, obnoxious people who uh, <clears throat> might say something mean-spirited. We're not defending that. Um, and, and, but, but of course, you don't create some national tribunal to deal with that. You nip it in the bud when you hear it. Um, or a microaggression is somebody who says something that shows they have some kind of obnoxious stereotype that they don't maybe even understand, but kind of makes you, you know, a little sick to your stomach. If they're, you know, I mean, if, if uh, I'm Irish, I, I probably wouldn't take offense because it's so ludicrous. Why would you? But if they were to, you know, someone said, well, you know, the Irish, they're all drunks. Well, you know, you might kind of go, this person's kind of an idiot. But the thing to do is to say right then and there, you know, that's a pretty stupid statement. Or to just not say anything and go about your day. But gosh, would you feel one iota of any sort of angst over that? No. Um, but there could be, I mean, look, there's a there's a myriad of ways to be obnoxious. So let, let's not let's not uh, figure that we've we've talked about them all. The point isn't, hey, it's okay to be obnoxious. The point is, these microaggressions are not aggressions. They're stupid statements. And this response is an incredible aggression. This is the state. This is the government. Because that's who is the University of Virginia Medical School. And this is them saying, if we don't like the questions you ask, you will be very sorry. This is an incredibly serious assault on this man's free speech and all of our free speech. This is a macro aggression and an aggression with real aggression in it. And so I think it's a very important story. And it again, it's it's, it strikes me in, in, in the way, well, I, I won't even go there because it would take a while to explain that, that analogy. But um, this is people looking at a tiny thing that we ought to be able to deal with in our own individual lives without any government help whatsoever. And I've been there because I've heard people say things. I wouldn't necessarily call them microaggressions, but I'd call them saying something that I or somebody else thought was racist or sexist or obnoxious on some level and seeing people, myself included, but my wife usually beats me to the punch, uh, saying something about it and taking them to task right then and there. And almost always everybody in the room, they, it's a, it, it just, it just, everything gets quiet and they, they hear it and then people move about their business but by golly, you don't hear him say that same thing again. And anybody who was offended by what they said is not now, is now maybe still offended, but maybe a little heartened to know everyone else thought they were a jerk too. But that's different than a society in which you have officials 
going after people because of questions they ask in a public forum. Those, <clears throat> those two things are just night and day. And, and you know, one of the problems in modern society is our inability to di differentiate things in any sort of rational way. And, and maybe that's part of it. I've written about this quite a lot uh, because I think it's funny. And I probably have a little bit different take than you, but we were basically agreed uh, a microaggression uh, it justifies my micro defense. The people who push the idea of a microaggression just use the word micro to highlight the word aggression, which allows them to de defend whatever the cause is in a meso or macro way. That's what they're doing. They're trying to up the level of aggression. That is their purpose, is that they say, oh, that's an aggression, that little slight you've made. And so I, I, th I think that, once again, their problem is that they're trying to up the level of in the cycle of violence and aggressivity. And I think they're wrong for that. Uh, because you're right, uh, ill-mannered statement should be dealt with in the realm of manners, not in the realm of law. That's that's how I look at right. that kind of thing. And I think we're in agreement on that. Uh, I would not agree that, uh, that uh, most so-called microaggressions or even many microaggressions are inherently bad uh, or worthy of, of bashing down. Many of these are contentious issues. Uh, for instance, a lot of the trans right. issues we're talking about these days. Um, I mean, I I've, I've used to have lots of trans friends, but I never called them and they never demanded anything of me, right? But now they're demanding and demanding certain ways of talking about them. And, and I have no interest in complying at all. And I will insult them if they, if they start their demands. Uh, and I'll, I'll even make fun of them. And this is a realm where I'm willing to be obnoxious. No, I haven't been. It's just that I'm willing to be because I think that they're being obnoxious by bringing this to the realm of law. Well, and, and uh, you know, I, I have no great depth of experience, but uh, the, the few transsexual people are, uh, uh, that I know, I've just never heard a complaint about anything like this. I've never heard expectations not being that the world's supposed to treat them a certain way and that not being met. And I think it tends to be complaints by people who aren't trans and who want to use it as some sort of political wedge. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, and I see this, I, I think also, you know, I've read so many articles uh, about the anti-Asian hate and, um, and I don't think most of it is really anti-Asian hate. I think in most cases, the incidents they're talking about is hate between two individuals who are of different races. And most of the incidents that have been detailed in some in these reports are African-Americans and uh, who have aggressed against Asian-Americans. And yet the reports almost have this white supremacy tone in them and then sometimes have that term in them. And, and of course that doesn't quite fit. Um, you know, it, it, we're getting awfully silly about putting everything in different political, you know, word patterns and so on that all, all cause folks to walk on eggshells and to not communicate with each other. 
And that doesn't further any of these causes, doesn't further any of them. Well, except that this is an interesting case in the sense that this man was asking legitimate questions, philosophical questions about the, the ideology that was being required of him. And uh, that makes it very interesting indeed, because asking questions is the beginning of Western civilization and maybe all civilizations. And we have to be able to query people in authority. And that might be people who are talking about issues like race. Uh, in, in this case, the, the yes. man uh, dared to ask the question, are the only people capable of microaggression uh, those of a certain race? Is, 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 it, is, it, is it race based or is it might uh, on the issue involved, for instance, can a trans person commit a microaggression against a, not, uh, you know, a, a cisgendered person? person. Yes. yes. That's a legitimate question. And it gets to the heart of modern um, post or postmodern theory about what these racism, sexisms, things means, and they have redefined the terms. They now believe it's about uh, prejudice plus power. And then they define power in a very reductive way. In, in a race that, way that says that the the white guy on the the street in Skid Row without a penny, addicted to crack and alcohol and 17 other drugs, is powerful because of his race and his sex. And I, I just don't know how silly you have to be to, to buy into that at that level. Um, but, but it is, it's, we should point out that this, uh, uh, this uh, med student, uh, I, from his name, I don't know what his nationality is, but his, his name appears to be Indian or, or uh, you know, maybe he's Afghani or Pakistani or something. But, uh, you know, I don't believe that, that he fits the white Caucasian, you know, label. So it's, it's, not, it's not as if this is, and again, there's no allegation here that he asked these questions in a mean or abusive or any other type of way. But asking questions of people who want to control you gets some feedback and that shows the that shows their attitudes towards everything in my opinion i don't like them i, I i'm just against them I, I think these people are tyrants by nature well they are because one of the things you said like one of the things you could say in america is well you you know your beliefs aren't going to stop you from getting the job you want if you're qualified or this or that well yes they will they will in my state of virginia at our flagship state institutions medical school, yes, your beliefs will stop you from becoming a doctor. And that's, I mean, it just doesn't get any more serious than that. And if you hurt at thinking of all the racial discrimination and other discrimination, gender discrimination that's gone on throughout all of time, and we ought to hurt just a little bit. I mean, we can't spend all our time hurting, but it's horrible. It's terrible. You have to then hurt for the person who today, right in front of you, is being discriminated against for even asking a question that the dominant political view at our public universities don't like. I mean, that's... It's serious, serious stuff. And did you say this was the University of Virginia? Yes. 
So Thomas Jefferson's university. Yes. What would Thomas Jefferson say? Yes. I mean, that's that's quite an insult uh, to the memory of that man. But of course, he's I'm sure the people who uh, nixed uh, the gentleman uh, and suppressed his thought and hated his question so much. I'm sure they'd like to take down every Thomas Jefferson element because Thomas Jefferson was such a bad man, you know. Right. Well, and, you know, the, the interesting thing is I always look at it and I think Thomas Jefferson, we didn't we didn't know him. We, we weren't around him. He died a long time before our great, great, great grandparents, you know, were alive. And maybe he was a rotten guy. Maybe he was a really sweet, nice guy. Who knows? But if you judge him by all men are created equal, then, you know, you're judging him by his own standard and he doesn't measure up but his standard sure measures up and i'm going to give at least a little salute to thanks for for phrasing that thanks for writing it down and thanks for slapping it on a pole in different cities and in, in the country that i happen to be born in a couple hundred years later it's again it's it's having some decent respect for people and it doesn't mean you can't condemn things but and, and uh, speaking of condemning things and, and respect, Major League Baseball has pulled the All-Star game out of Atlanta because of the Georgia uh, uh, elections law, a law that I think on balance is a good law and improvement. And I think most objective people, even people who aren't where I am exactly on all these issues, if they read it uh, and thought about it, would agree. But my problem you know, maybe Major League Baseball, they're a corporation just like any other corporation. They're free to speak in our country. Maybe they have some real problems with it. I'd like to hear them articulate the problems they have with it. Let's hear them out. But we really don't hear any of that. We hear them sizing, you know, kind of teaming up with folks who hate big corporations. <laughs> unless they're on their side, then they like them. But we don't hear anything about anything except, oh, this is voter suppression. In other words, they can repeat the headlines and they can say that's why they're doing what they're doing, but no analysis about the Georgia law, no demand that if they change this, this, and this, we will restore the game to Atlanta. No, in other words, they're not engaged. They're playing games to kind of snuggle up with those in power. But if you thought, well, no, wait, they've got, you know, they, they you, you might disagree, Paul, but they, they believe in things. I wonder what they believe in because my commentary, two strikes and you're out MLB, is about one simple fact that the day before they announced they were moving the game out of Atlanta, they signed a deal with a Chinese company that's in with the state, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chi Nazis, and to send baseball into China, they get money, you get baseball. Is there a reason not to deal with people who our government has certified, you know, I've, they could be wrong, they're not, but on this one, but has certified is engaged in genocide. 
In other words, it'd be sort of like saying, and this isn't prior to the, you know, uh, people knew different things about what the Nazis were up to and had suspicions, but it wasn't as if the United States government said, we know that they are trying to exterminate the Jews. We know that there's a genocide going on. I mean, I think there were probably some reasons to be very, very much concerned that that's what was going on, obviously. But, but this is what is going on today. Our government officially certifies it is going on. Other governments have said the same thing, who've looked into it. There's all kinds of evidence. And you're going to deal with people who are engaged in genocide but you will not deal with people who passed an election law that you deem to be suppressive of the vote in ways that you won't explain. <laughs> that's, that's Major League Baseball and that's this whole corporate thing. And, and the truth is I could see a corporation, for instance, George Soros. I'm not a big fan of George Soros. But I have to say that I respect the fact that George Soros spends money trying to advance his political ideals. Don't agree, but I have some respect for him, more respect for him than the guy next to him who might have just as much money, believe in the same stuff, but think, ah, I don't really care what happens to the world. And so, and, and so I can respect someone who disagrees with me, who believes in something, something different than I believe in. At least I can respect that belief. And here, this is, this is crass, sickening identity politics by people who think it will earn them some extra dollars. And it's, it makes me sick. And, and I told my, uh, Youngest daughter, we were supposed to go see a uh, ball game last summer and, um, and couldn't go. And so she said, hey, um, you, we got to go this summer. Okay. So I've made a commitment. I will go to one ball game if she is going and, and we can find a time. But I almost always go to a game, at least one, uh, sometimes more. I, I can't. And I'm, I'm not as excited. I mean, the Tigers have a great new player who's who's hit home runs game after game, grand slams. He's just incredible. And I'm, I'm like less excited about it because I see the sport that I love behaving horribly, horribly. And and um, anyway, that's that's. Uh, that is very depressing. And, and the truth is that you kind of hate to get into a world in which everything is, well, then I'm going to boycott you and I'm going to boycott you and I'm going to cancel you and I'm going to cancel you. But that sort of behavior begets that sort of behavior. And at a certain point, it's like campaign finance uh, regulations. I had a good friend who uh, was in a campaign and the other side cheated in all kinds of ways. And after the campaign was over and it was obvious that they had cheated, they hadn't reported certain things that they should have reported. Um, he said, I'm, you know, I don't want to use these laws that I think are outrageous against somebody. And I said, you have to, you have to, or those laws never get changed. Because if, if, you know, the, if the establishment can cheat, and not follow their own laws, 
they're gonna they're gonna just make them even tougher on us because they don't have to face them. And so it it is. It's it's sad, but but that's uh, that's we need to we got to hit back. We have to uh, we have to do the uh, tat for tat. The problem, I guess, really is that uh, this is rather like the problem with public goods and government in general is that there are dispersed costs and uh, yes. concentrated benefits. And for the corporation sees the concentrated benefits of the interest groups that are pushing the woke agenda. And they see the people who disagree with the woke agenda as being not paying all that much attention to the subject and has, and they're much more interested in the actual products of their corporation. So they're not going to have the feedback that they think that would, uh, be negative and so the costs of annoying the anti-woke so to speak the, you might say the red-pilled uh and the normal and normies which are vast the vast majority of people uh are not anywhere near the benefits of appeasing the uh the woke and the woke uh, th therefore gain the upper hand that's how it works and so the only the only way around this is, as you say, is to get people who are against the woke to actually back up their statements. And this unfortunately makes everybody uh, in society more political in non-political realms is that we're bringing politics into everything. And this isn't going to make this isn't going to be a nice time coming up, but there's no way around it, because if we don't do it, then we're just going to get yeah, trampled. Yeah. That's just simply the case. There's, there's and, no way around it other than that. In and, my view, I've always thought when they subsidize sports stadiums and stuff, I'm just thinking, this is so crazy because people love sports. Not everybody. Some people don't like sports at all. But people who do love sports, they love them so much. The idea that you would have to subsidize that. They will crawl over broken glass to go see these games. and And so it's like... I, it's always just drove me crazy, but the truth is these are, these major league franchises are licenses to print money. It is hard not to get rich when you're selling these professional sports. And yet, mark my words, they are going to find ways to make these incredibly less profitable. And major league baseball, uh, it's not the most popular sport, you know, they, you don't give anybody concussions or anything half the time. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But the, the NBA has taken some hits in their viewership, Major League Baseball, NFL. And I think they're going to continue to take hits as long as they try to please Washington and not their customers. And they deserve it. They deserve all those hits. I hate to to think that, you know, we won't have as much sports, but uh, we'll find other things to do. We'll find our own. We'll find other ways. Well, you know, I hate sports. Oh, I, I can say that with, with a passion, right? That it's just one of the things I don't like in this world, but I'm fine with other people liking sports. It's not that big of a deal to me, but I just don't like them myself. I mean, to my, my idea of a, of a good game, you know, I think volleyball is a good game. Uh, but, uh, but I, I, I don't watch any sports, but one thing I do, am a partisan of something i really enjoy is diet coke to me this is the nectar of the gods it may be the worst poison i drink and it probably is even if i drink a bit of whiskey now and then it's probably the worst thing i drink but i love it 
but this is my last glass. I'm running, I don't have any Diet Coke in my house right now, other than this, what's in this glass. And Coca-Cola has recently uh, come out in a woke way. And yeah. they pissed me off and I'm, and I'm uh, going to drink Diet Dr. Pepper or not, not, nothing at all. And if, they, if I find out Dr. Pepper is also, I thought it was Pepsi related. I'm pretty sure it's Pepsi related, but if it's Coke related, it's going. So I think it's, I think it's somewhat independent as far as the label, Dr. Pepper, because I'm, I'm a pepper. Well, be a pepper. Yes. But it's, it's, it's bottled, I think by Coca-Cola or something. I, I, uh, I've been trying to get off of sugary drinks and sugar uh, and, and, uh, but I like soda. I've always loved soda. Like as a kid, it was heroin, you know, Oh, it's Dr. Pepper. Anyway, uh, so I sometimes will treat myself to a, a soda and I've gotten to where I've started to like Coke more than Dr. Pepper. Well, um, and my wife would buy Cokes. She doesn't drink them. Uh, but, and they would last a good while because I would never have more than one in a day. Um, I mean, in the old days I would, but not, not now. But the last one ran out right about this time. And, you know, I... The other day I wanted something, you know, the head was fizzy. I got a Mountain Dew and, and my wife immediately said, isn't that a Coke product? I said, no, 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 this is a Pepsi product. But um, it's the sort of thing where people will do that. And we're, we're you know, here's two of us. And, and, you know, it's not to me, it's not really because I care so much about that Georgia law. It's not like I, oh, that has to pass and that's the future of the world or something. It's much more a reaction to you are messing around in my political world, in my free country, and you are doing it in an obnoxious way. Not only are you trying to block something that I think is positive, but you don't give a damn about it. You don't give a damn about it. You just want what you want. And, and boy, that's, you know, that's kind of the, that's the, there's a lot of bad places in hell, but that's a really specially bad place. Well, I suspect there's some people in the HR departments of Coke who are pretty, uh, Coke and, and MLB that are pretty woke. And so they may actually be earnest and be hoping that they're actually doing something good for their cause. I don't know if they have come to the conclusion yet that they may be ushering in in a premature demise of their mania because what what we have is the democrats now have, has control of three three branches of uh, government you know three both houses of congress and the presidency and uh the democrats are solidly on the side of woke ideology right now and yes. there is a i would say there's a good half of the american people that hate hate wokeism uh, many of them are afraid to speak out against it, but they it's, don't like it's a it. Very, it's a very condescending, obnoxious, you know, being woke, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but in our modern form, it's, uh, it's absolutely obnoxious. But here's, here's the thing too. They control the White House, the House and the Senate and Hollywood and television and K through 12 education and the university system and most of the media and Twitter and Facebook. 
and Twitter and Facebook. And it just goes on and on and on. And there, there's going to be a problem. Now, <clears throat> we probably have gone long enough that we, we deal with that problem of, of you know, the, the big tech and all of this. And this is a regular staple on uh, the this week in common sense. And, uh, and we'll keep talking about it. I want to just mention the last commentary. Uh, we're probably not going to get any help there, but it could be a, uh, what, a variable, a wild card. And that is on Friday, our commentary uh, was do not discuss this. And it is a commentary about, well, two things, really. One, about the fact that we all kind of recognize that our government spends money crazy and that we were like 20 trillion in debt all of a sudden after being, you know, thinking it was pretty bad when we were four and seven trillion. Now all of a sudden it's 20 trillion and we're deficit spending a trillion dollars a year. And then the pandemic comes and we're spending 2 trillion here and 6 trillion there and three and 1.9 and 2.4. And when you start adding multiple trillions up it starts to get to be double digit trillions. And we're in trouble, but we don't talk about it much. And we made the point in the commentary that one of the reasons we don't talk about it much is because it doesn't seem like there's anything we can do about it. And it's so frightening. And then we added to it something which, you know, is kind of fun to talk about because it's, it's off the beaten path and so on. But it's, it's, there's a serious element to it as well. And that is UFOs. And the fact that for decades, you know, most of us kind of UFOs, uh, it was some, it's some shadow, it's some light reflected, it's this, it's that, let's not be silly. Um, and our government always poo-pooing it. And then it coming out that our government has film, <laughs> you know, and they, and that this isn't a report here or there, but lots of reports by people who are very credible pilots and, you know, and, and three people on that plane saw it and, and so on, and they took pictures of it. And so we are seeing more and more about that. And yet we don't, the media doesn't cover it in much of any way, except this kind of funny arm's length, you know, let's make a few jokes and let's move on and never again really asking for any real accountability from our government. Okay, what exactly is happening here? What do you know? What don't you know? There's been, there've been allegations that, uh, that they have alien craft, that they have aliens. Now, you know, an allegation is an allegation, but these are made by some credible people and there's no response. A categoric, hey, no, that's not the case, uh, would be one way to deal with it. Acknowledging if, if it is, uh, but it's, it, again, it just gets to transparency. And, and we talked about this for years. Uh, one of the things that if you go to that commentary, uh, do not discuss this uh, at thisiscommonsense.org, at the end, it lists five other commentaries that we've done on <clears throat> UFOs and largely on the lack of transparency by our government about UFOs. 
And when we first talked about it, a lot of times you go, I don't think you really want to deal with that, but it's really a fascinating subject. And we talk about it. And a lot of times I would say the same thing, which is, well, we ought to talk about it. We don't have to talk about, you know, we somehow think this or that, or we know anything, but just why don't we know anything? And why doesn't our government come clean with us? And, um, and so we have repeatedly as different things have broken, brought that to our audience because we think it's important, not so much, um, I mean, you've followed it more closely and know a lot more about it than I do, Tim, but it's, it's a fascinating subject. We only live in this world so long and it's a big, beautiful universe and, and we, I wanna know everything I can know about it. <clears throat> and it seems to me that our government has treated us again like children. And to me, that's kind of the biggest issue, but it's also fascinating, um, you know, just because it, it's, it's an age old question. And uh, anyway, and it's also, I think, interesting, maybe not fascinating, but interesting how we've been taught and trained to kind of compartmentalize it and to slough it away, you know, oh, it's, it's this, it's, it's, it's something that we're not really supposed to think about. Right. And uh, I, I just listened to uh, Richard Dolan, uh, a piece that he did, uh, I don't remember when he did it, but it's about the Robertson panel, which was the first official panel, the US government, you know, the military industry, basically it was a Pentagon thing, uh, to cover and come out with what to say about these uh, phenomena and uh, he made the very interesting point point that uh, the panel was decided what they were going to say and it had a political element it was the Truman administration determining what presidents in the future and what other and people outside outside of politics what they were going to think about they were very afraid of what the American people were getting interested in because there were a lot of sightings of UFOs during the late forties and early fifties, lots of them. Uh, most people don't even remember though, that for instance, there were UFOs over the white house. I mean, things that are peculiar, I mean, over Washington DC and right over the Capitol building and, and uh, then they were hushed up and they were covered up and it's, but there were, there were headline stories in newspapers and uh, but the government started in 1954 when Eisenhower took over. Uh, the government was had a, an agenda to bury some of this and to scoff at it and to make sure that academics didn't investigate it openly and that the American people didn't investigate it carefully and that it didn't. You know, it, it was. It's, it's a very. It's a very incendiary subject because it could bear on lots of things, including religion, right? and including the military integrity of the United States. Right. Both things are very, right. very obvious. And that's the point that people are making right now and why the Senate is going to be uh, given briefed on this yes. in June with a special with a special thing. And that's the, one of the occasions for your piece. Uh, and we I don't know if you've mentioned in the past, but this is it. And it was, what do you say here? I mean, it was, it was brought in in the middle of a, in a stimulus bill. Yes. They, they, they what, what do you call that? You call that a, 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 a gut and stuff, a gut and oh, stuff. Oh. That was the something you said earlier today, a gut and stuff uh, kind of a measure. Nevertheless, we are, I guess the Senate's going to learn something. I don't know. 
when do when do we get our briefing? That's what uh, that's what I'd like. That's the very interesting thing. And I don't think we're going to get the truth. I don't think that they have any interest in giving us the truth. They're going to try to figure out some way of giving us half-truths and lies, which is why I put up the, the quote from the X-Files on today's, uh, on today's uh, thought on the side. Did you see that? I didn't see that. Oh, I, I should show you. Uh, you, have to, you have to put it up now for everybody. But uh, no, I've been at a crazy day. It's, a, it's something like... Um, the most convenient place to put a lie is between two truths. Oh, I did see that. I did see that. Yes. And it, and it, there are there are ways that people with uh, access to information can get us to think wrong about things, and they're subtle things. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I've been dealing with a lot in the last several years, and that's one of the reasons I bring the subject up a lot, uh, and I pester you about it is because uh, I think it's easier to keep secrets than people think. And one of the ways to do it is to poison the well of public information. And uh, when William Casey uh, was charged with, by Ronald Reagan with, you know, what is the CIA up to? Because William Casey became the CIA director during the Reagan years. And uh, William Casey was uh, reported uh, telling the uh, president of the United States that the purpose of the CIA is disinformation. He says they will have succeeded when everything the United States, the American citizens believe is incorrect. And that sounds awful. And you that can't believe that awful. anyone would say that. It sounds really bad. And then you realize, oh, that's why they had to do it. Is there was an asymmetry of information between the Soviet Union and the United States government. We lived in an open society and most of the information that was intelligence that we had and the Soviet Union had was public information could be easily gotten. So the only way to, and it was very hard to get information of the Soviet Union. So how did, how did we maintain balance? Well, the idea of the, of the of CIA was to seed public information with disinformation. And that's the main mission of the CIA is to keep disinformation in the public. And I think that's where we're at today is that we're living in a society where the media is basically been plying, major media has been plying the CIA craft and have been doing- We, we don't get to it this week because uh, it just broke, uh, I guess last night or yes, late yesterday. And, uh, but <clears throat> it came out the Russian bounty story, which was a big thing throughout the campaign. And that basically it's, low to moderate uh, faith in the intelligence, which is kind of the intelligence agencies saying, no, we don't think that this is true. Now, what was reported in the news in the way that they always report these things like, boy, they know, even though they're talking to people they can't tell you who they are, was that the intelligence agencies had verified this this is so, and Trump apparently is doing nothing. He hasn't talked to Putin about it, it you know, and Biden hit him on it. And, and of course, you know, sometimes people get things wrong, but there's also no accountability at this point. No sense of we, here's the mistake that was made. Here's, we have ended our relationship with those sources or we fired 
the reporter who got that. And, and you know, sometimes a reporter can be fooled on something. I'm not necessarily going to fire them if they ever make a mistake or anything. Some accountability, some just tiny bit of sorrow that they misled people so much about that story. So it's, but maybe we'll talk about that next week, but it's, it's, uh, Perhaps along with James O'Keefe's uh, big revelation about how CNN operates. Yes, yes. That was an astoundingly interesting story. Well, we may have, it sounds like uh, it's almost half written. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what your angle is. I don't... Stay tuned. They can, they can, well, I'm just thinking we got, uh, we got two little bits of media interest, uh, interesting media stories. Maybe we can, maybe I can put those together. So next week at thisiscommonsense.org and, um, and we'll try to uh, hopefully, um, hopefully we'll, well, I don't know what hopefully we'll do, but, but uh, I, I don't think we'll have the court constitutionalized yet, but I'm, I'm hopeful that gets into the discussion because as I said, I think uh, a week or so ago, whenever we talked about this last, I, I haven't heard anybody talk about that. There was there was actually a bill introduced. I should I should take that back. There was a bill introduced by Republicans this week. Uh, it came after we had we had talked about it, but they have a bill in that would put nine into the Constitution. So I take that back. There at least has been some action taken in Congress, but there's still not talk more broadly. And I guess the media is waiting, but it seems like they. They don't wait on other stuff that they want to push. That to me is such a big issue that we would allow that to just be hanging out there. Our court could just be totally changed, drop of a hat. Well, my only disagreement with, with that would probably be I'd rather it be seven. But aside from that, I'm probably with you on that. <laughs> Lucky seven, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I have a I have a thing for prime numbers. <laughs> seven and eleven are my favorite numbers. Anyway, okay, very good. So this is uh, the second full week of April 2021. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you later. Well, that's the end of This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. Once again, my name is Timothy Vericola, and I just want to call your attention to two things. First, go to thisiscommonsense.org. That's where Paul writes five days a week. Commentary. Since 1999. And the second thing I want to say is, Paul's prophecy that this was going to be a short podcast was woefully wrong.